You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Dr. Shiv Someshwar, a development clinician whose focus is on diagnosing the development of cities and nation states. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. My area of work is sustainable development with a focus on climate. And to put it very simply, it means how do you have economic growth that is socially equitable and environmentally sustainable? It's not just that you have ecological sustainability because lots of examples of ecologically sensitive growth need not be socially equitable. That's why this emphasis on just transition, not just about climate, but also about social equity in economic growth. And unlike in Europe, most parts of the world would look at you blankly if you talked about degrowth because they are hungry for growth. And so sustainable development is about managing these trade-offs which is what I've been working on. My work is really focused on institutions and how do you kind of bring the best of science into development. And development is also spatially informed. It's not just the statistical averages because you have people living in cities, in villages, homesteads. So how do you kind of actually be looking at geographically sensitive in your policymaking? And that comes from a background in planning and architecture. So a key is to recognize whether it's climate smart development, regenerative agriculture, offsetting or mitigation, or climate smart cities, you're really talking about trade-offs. How do you organize trade-offs across space and across your priority of resourcing? That when you have to invest more in a water supply system, given a finite revenue base, you're gonna get something less for some other thing, right? It could be for health or education or sanitation. So you need to recognize these trade-offs, make it obvious, make it transparent, and get people to commit to these trade-offs. Because a lot of us make this mistake of thinking that, oh, you can go to the World Bank or to the European Investment Bank or to African Development Bank. No, they are banks. Most of them are loans. Or you will have ODAs, the Overseas Development Assistance, say USAID or the French Financing for Development they will come in. But they are relative to what governments bring in. Most countries, it's the government's revenue that goes into development. And so how do you kind of mobilize those development when you are single-minded? You're just saying, oh, this is what we need to do. It's climate. Someone else will say, no, 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 it's not actually not climate. It's really education or health. Actually, you really need to get food production up. There is massive insecurity coming up. So how do you kind of organize these trade-offs? That becomes important with the stories you say and not just promise them, if you do this, this is what's going to happen, because that is one stream of storytelling in its own silo, and that doesn't quite intertwine with these other stories that need to be told. So to give you an example, to make it real, in the course that I teach both at Columbia and at, at Sciences Po, we focus on sustainable development as narratives, not as given, not as that's one narrative, but sustainable development as narratives, because historically you have had important stories told about social inclusion, the importance of inclusion, importance of rights, not just political rights, but unfreedoms and freedoms. That one aspect, which is really important, considerations of equity, post-COVID, especially when you have this rising inequality, how do you advance equity? At the same time, you also need to focus on environmental issues. That's another narrative. And historically, these two have never really come together, except now through sustainable development. So in my class, you can actually take students through these multiple narratives. When you're focusing for all the right reasons on reducing vulnerability of, of marginalized populations with no attention paid to environment. Now we know from our standpoint that's not the right way to go about. 
And the same thing is when we just focus on a green solution. Let me start with saying what we should not be looking at, which unfortunately a lot of well-informed development agencies are, and they call it climate-proofing cities. That is a mistake. You cannot climate-proof anything. And also gives the population and policymakers a wrong sense. The correct term is climate smart. So how do you get climate smart? It's not easy. And a key question I always ask my students when people use the term stakeholders, that's like a throwaway term. Oh, we need to get all the stakeholders around the table to ask, okay, what stake do they hold? What stake does a civil society leader hold? What does a community member hold? Don't assume that they're holding a certain interest. Make that clear. IPCC yeah. is really to bring the best of peer-reviewed science. Mm -hmm. By design, they are not meant to come up with policies. Governments are interested in keeping power. They don't want to have a global entity that is not answerable to anyone. Many years ago, there was a whole issue about World Environment Organization. How to actually have World Environment Organization with teeth. You can tell countries should be doing or should not be doing. Never went anywhere. It was a fascinating idea. But in terms of practice, it didn't go anywhere because sovereign nation states, from the smallest to the largest, are not going to give up. They're not going to give up power easily. And so when I talked about institutions, we really need to be prudent about how do we design these institutions that actually have both issues of justice and equity, as well as, in this case, issues of climate mitigation and climate risk management. It can't just be focused on mitigation. It can't just be equity doesn't matter. People are going to get hurt, if not killed. Whole societies may impact severely, but that's okay for the common good. Now, who are we to make those kind of judgments? So again, institutions is where it all kind of comes down to. And blaming policymakers for either being too unaware, too dumb, or corrupt is, I think, not the right way to go about. It doesn't mean that they're not. All of them are doing an excellent job. Not at all. So that's my book writing project now. I have a strong title, Fallacy of Evidence-Based Policymaking, because as researchers, that's what we do. The promise is how do you help come up with better policies, better decisions, how to communicate science effectively so that policymakers say, aha, we should be using this. But I've seen in my own research over the last 30 years and worked with some stellar researchers across the world, Indonesia, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, Brazil, of course, the US and Europe, how so much of excellent research that's going on in broadly in this area of environment, climate, and development, such a small percentage of them actually get used effectively and used in a meaningful manner, going beyond just the executive summary of a policy, actually to get used in the policy. So the question is why? And there are some standard explanations in uh, literature, sociology, political science, and public policy. So I'm trying to kind of untangle those to figure out what are we not doing right? Because increasingly, it's not lack of resource for research. That used to be the case, I think, in the 60s, 70s, and maybe part of the 80s. But now many governments, even companies, have pretty deep pockets when it comes to research. So I'm writing a manuscript on that, saying, what is it as researchers we're not doing? How far are we off track from getting to net zero by 2050? Oh, way, way, way off. Both is 1.5 degree aspirational goal of the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015. 2023, global average was off. But that doesn't mean it's going to be consistently that way because 1.5 in the Paris Climate Agreement is long term. So what happens is we're always looking backwards. We'll never know when the tipping point came. But I think for all intentions, 1.5 degrees is in the past. We really will be struggling to meet 2 degrees centigrade. This issue of net zero, that's another one of the terms that need to be opened up. Because when you talk about net zero, you're not talking of zero emissions. What you're talking of is emissions that have an equivalent amount sucked out, either by growing trees or through carbon sequestration technologies. And in the first flush, 
post-Paris Climate Agreement, a lot of companies and countries promised net zero, which I think was a good promise to begin with. Part of the net zero promise is also offsetting. That means we will come up with 20 tons of carbon dioxide here in this part of the planet, but we'll plant trees, we'll make sure that 20 tons of carbon get sequestered in some other part of the planet. That'll work for the early movers because the price of carbon is determined by the carbon market, which still we don't have, but there are really good carbon market in Europe, ETS system. And now the beginnings of a countrywide carbon market in China and in parts of the U.S., in most other parts of the planet, there is no formal carbon market. It's mostly by taxing gasoline that you have a proto carbon market. So the latecomers, developing countries or companies that come late to the game, are going to pay more for the same carbon. And this goes against the heart of one of the principles of UNFCCC, which is common but differentiated responsibility, CBDR, that industrialized countries have an obligation because they got a running lead. They polluted the global commons, in this case, the atmosphere, and increasingly the oceans. And so they have a responsibility which they accepted. But in practice, CBDR has been deeply, deeply problematic. Offsetting is one of those issues connected to net zero that has huge inequities built in. Recently, a colleague and I did a quick take on carbon offset projects across the world. And a lot of it is focused now on afforestation. It's really startling to find how little we can actually guarantee. We're not thinking about keeping carbon on the ground through growing trees for the next five to 10 years. We are promising that it's going to be for much longer. And if those trees are cut and they're used in industries, we'll capture that carbon dioxide and at the same time grow more trees. But the institutional basis of offsetting has been very poorly attended to. In many parts of the world, it's waving your hands and saying, oh, no, no, we're going to take care of it uh, later on. The boxes have been ticked. But this is problematic because we don't fully get into issues of power and powerlessness. Why is it in the interest of certain stakeholders to sequester carbon, while it may not be in the interest of others because they want their aspirations, they want to urbanize, they want to have cities do better rather than hemmed in by offset promises. So in the report we did coming out from the Commission on International Climate Action, the School of International Affairs at uh, Science Powell's Secretariat, we came up with a counterintuitive approach which said it's in the enlightened self-interest of governments and companies to work on issues of climate, especially on mitigation. It makes abundant economic and political sense for the European Union to go about its intended carbon border adjustment mechanism, not as a penalty system, but as a system of helping developing country companies do a better job in reducing the carbon footprint. It's in the interest of Europe which wants to be the first continent that is climate neutral. And I think they're doing amazing work, but they need to go about it in a different way. So we opened up this whole issue of enlightened self-interest in contrast to what many NGOs are talking about. Altruism should be the way forward. Altruism, according to us, is not going to be powerful enough as a way forward because there always will be self-interest. So rather than reject self-interest, we see how do you turn the self-interest and lighten for climate action? Now we are so careless in the way we approach things we think we understand and we're dismissive. We are quick to judgment. And that's one thing I hope that in my class and the current generation really needs to be far more reflective and not just because something doesn't gel with what they think is the right thing, is the just thing. They can't just dismiss it out of hand. And one way to really gain a better understanding is to read widely, not just read what you agree with. Don't just talk to people you agree with. 
read and discuss widely. Especially read those things that you disagree with. And then ask yourself, why? Why are you having this reaction? Why this negative emotion? Go to the heart of why you think you disagree with this. So it's a combination. It's not pure rationality. You're not like trying to make this a pure rational exercise, but you also, you need to have passion, but you need to, I think, guide the passion through this reflective, discursive exercise. And also it enables the young to become better communicators. You need to be open to being questioned. You don't outshout the questioner. You really need to be able to answer these uncomfortable questions. And that's the way for persuasion, to get someone who thinks, oh, climate change is just nonsense. And of course, you have power dynamics over which you have no control, especially when you're young. And that's something they really need to also figure out. How does one work in a situation of power and powerlessness? But there is no substitute for knowing. But otherwise, all the passion you bring to the table can get knocked off with the second question because we are unable to answer that. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.